I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We want to start a new series this morning. And I'm really excited about it. It's something that I know that I know that I know that the Lord wants me to do. And so we want to, as a way of introducing the subject this morning, or the new series this morning, we want to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30. Paul is writing to the church, talking about who we are in Christ and what we have in the precious name of Jesus. And he says, but of him, verse 30, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, he says, but of him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us. I love this verse of Scripture because it tells us who we are in him. It tells us what we have because of Jesus, who is made unto us wisdom. Thank God for the wisdom of God. We have wisdom residing within us because the Spirit of God lives inside of us. We can draw from that wisdom anytime and every time that we need to. If any of us lack wisdom, we can ask of God and so forth. What a precious, wonderful thing it is to have the wisdom of God on the inside of us. Then it says that he's made unto, made unto us righteousness. Thank God for the righteousness of God. The Bible says if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. We know that means spiritually. We know that means we become a new spirit, and that new spirit is made righteous by the blood of Jesus. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and and redemption. Thank God for redemption. We're redeemed from the curse of the law. We're redeemed from spiritual death. We're redeemed from sickness. We're redeemed from poverty. Thank God for redemption in the precious blood of Jesus. Now, in case you're wondering why I skipped over the one, it's because that's how everybody reads this verse of Scripture. God's made us in Jesus, made Jesus unto us wisdom and righteousness and redemption. Thank God for those three. But he's also made unto us sanctification. Why don't we hear anything about sanctification? I, uh, if you were with us last uh, Sunday morning, I finished up a series on the ABCs of faith and really didn't intend to, to include this, the subject that I did last Sunday in, uh, in that series, but the Lord really directed me to. I taught on faith works by love. And I made a statement in there, and, and it was something I've heard Brother Hagin say a long time ago. Uh, I heard he, I really only heard it said a couple of times in the time I was around him, uh, working for him, and, and uh, uh, the years that I had following him, and I've listened to everything that he's ever done that's ever been recorded on tape, read everything he ever uh, uh, preached that was transcribed. He never really wrote a book, but, uh, but his sermons were transcribed into to books and stuff like that. I've read everything, got every piece of material that there is that exists, and only a couple of times, maybe three, two I remember specifically, maybe a third, did I ever hear Brother Hagin say, now, if there's a weakness in this charismatic circles or charismatic move of God, he's talking about Pentecostalism all the way back to 1914 when it was first established, even before that, um, when the first Pentecostal organization was established in 1914, even before that, back to 1907 in the Azusa Street Revival. He said, if there's a weakness in this charismatic revival or charismatic move of God, he said that there's no teaching on sanctification. Well, I just made that statement last, uh, last Sunday morning. I, you know. 
I didn't really have anything behind it. We, we talked a little bit about character, talked a little bit about walking in love and so forth. And then this last week, the Lord dealt with me very, very specifically, very, very strongly. He said, why don't you live up to your own preaching? Now, I don't know how God talks to you. But God usually deals with me very specifically, especially when it comes to the church. Now, when it's not my own personal life, it's a different thing. He deals with me in a different way, which is how I can tell whether he's telling me something for me or whether he's telling me something for the benefit of the church. And not everything he tells me for for me is for the benefit of the church. But when God deals with me concerning the church, he deals very, very specifically, very, very strongly. It's a stronger voice that I hear when it's direction for the church. And he asked me in that stronger voice, why don't you live up to your own preaching? I said, Lord, ouch. What do you mean? He said, you said that the weakness in the charismatic revival is that there's no teaching on sanctification. And I answered in my own defense. I was just saying what Brother Hagin said. (laughs) And he said, why don't you teach on sanctification? I thought, "Uh, because I don't want to. So guess what this series is? <laughs> sanctification. Now, how many of you know what sanctification means or sanctify means? The word sanctify is used in the scripture over 150 times in one form or another. Now, that's not the most of any word that's used in the Bible, certainly. But you can't ignore the fact that it's in there a bunch. Now, what does it mean when it talks about to sanctify or to or, uh, sanctify or sanctification? They both come from the same root word. And the word is translated in a lot of different ways. For example, this is the word Jesus used when he prayed the Lord's Prayer or gave the disciples what's called the Lord's Prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The word hallowed is the word sanctify. It's translated holy. It's translated to be holy, to make holy, and so forth. The word sanctify in its original form means this. It means to cleanse or to make holy. It carries with it the implication. Now, the Old Testament talks a lot about sanctifying different implements of the temple and when the temple was created and, and the, the priests sanctify the priests, sanctify their clothing, sanctify the, the breastplate of, of uh, 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 the breastplate that was placed on the high priest and all this other kind of stuff, ceremonial washings and, and all that had to do with sanctification. It carries with it the implication or the idea that something is being separated from common or normal use to be used specifically, designated for specific use to either serve for or serve in the worship of God. Now, if it's, a, if it's an instrument, like, for example, the, the elements of the temple, it wasn't enough that they'd just make golden uh, instruments. They had to then sanctify them. There was a process whereby, whereby they then sanctified them with prayer and, uh, and cleansing and stuff like that so that these things were worthy to be used in the temple. But where it came to people, both Old Testament and New Testament, it means that someone is separated for the worship of God. In other words, not to be used in a common or an ordinary manner any longer. Both things and people. Now, what does the Bible say about our sanctification? Well, let's look at a couple of things. Look with me over to to Hebrews chapter 10. Let's see what sanctification is. You need to know that there's a lot of uh, disagreement in the body of Christ, about what sanctification is. Some preach sanctification is a one-time experience. Others preach sanctification is a process. Now, why do they, why do they, they, they identify in that way? Because both are right. 
For example, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. By the which will, in other words, by God's will, we are sanctified, are sanctified. That's something that's already happened. So notice what Paul is inspired by the Holy Ghost to write about sanctification. He says something's already happened. He said, by the will of God, by which will, meaning the will of God, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. The word sanctified means to make holy or to be purified. It says you were made holy by the blood of Jesus. You were sanctified. You were purified by the blood of Jesus. Look with me over to chapter 13. Paul talked about sanctification in a different way to the Jews than he did to the Gentiles. Because they understood sanctification as a part of their Old Testament process or the law of Moses and so forth. It was part of their history. There is no history for the Gentiles of sanctification. Gentiles never sanctify anything unto God because they don't know God. The Jews, however, knew God. So he said in chapter 13, um, well, let's start reading in verse 8 and we'll skip down into some other verses. It says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. It says, be not carried away with diverse and strange doctrines, for it's a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats, which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. In other words, he said, your Old Testament prophecy or your Old Testament uh, law, the law of Moses was all about what you can and can't eat. He said, that's not what it's about anymore. It's about Jesus. We have an altar, verse 10, whereof they have no right to eat. The unsaved have no right to eat, which serve the tabernacle. Now, the unsaved he's talking about are the priests. The Old Testament priests, he's saying they had an Old Testament ritual to, to keep, but without Jesus, they have no part in the sacrifice that we have. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is bought in, brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. He's talking about the sin offering of the Old Testament. He said the sin offering had to be burned outside the camp because it was impure, couldn't be inside the holy place. Wherefore, verse 12, Jesus also In other words, Jesus also was offered outside the the gate or outside the camp that he might sanctify the people with his own blood and he suffered without the gate. Now, he's talking about on Calvary. Calvary was outside the city limits, is outside the temple. He's saying Jesus fulfilled in every manner whatsoever, every manner and every, every little detail, he fulfilled the sanctification process of the Old Testament because he was our sin offering once and for all. So what does it say? It says that the Bible or the Bible is very specific in saying that sanctification has occurred. Look back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter 6. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, which had numerous problems. And he wrote to them. Maybe we ought to start reading in verse 9. He said, know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, revilers, literally, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now, he's not saying those people can't get saved because he's going to tell them that's who they were. He's saying this, you can't operate that way and inherit the kingdom of God blessings here on the earth. Verse 11, and such were some of you. So obviously those people can get saved. And such were some of you, but now, the contrast is now in the present time, you are washed, you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. 
So he's saying sanctification is something that was a one-time event when you got saved. You were made holy. You were made pure. You were separated unto the worship and service of God. But now we've got a problem. Look with me over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul's writing to the church, giving them instruction just like he gives us instruction. Starting verse 1, he says, Furthermore then, we beseech you, brethren. Brethren means saved. means brothers in Christ. He's writing to people that are born again, people that have been sanctified, have been separated unto God, have been purified and made holy by the blood of Jesus, right? If we take the other verses of Scripture in context, he has to mean that. Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as you have received of us how you ought to walk, that means live, that means manner of lifestyle, and to please God, so you would abound more and more. In other words, we beseech you and exhort you to stick with the things that we told you so that you could walk pleasing to God. So you could live a manner of life that is pleasing to God, which implies that you can live a manner of life as a Christian that is unpleasing to God. Right? That means God's not happy with just anything and everything that comes along. I can feel your collar starting to tighten already. This is where people have trouble with the sanctification subject. For we know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. He says, we want you to walk according to what we taught you because we know we taught you what was given to us by Jesus to tell you. You know, one of the the things I love about Paul, Paul knew that his doctrine was sound. He knew that his doctrine was solid. He knew if you stuck with what he told you because Jesus gave it to him himself, you would end up in a good place. He couldn't say that about everybody. And didn't. You can't say that about everybody now. Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as you have received of us, the commandments, in other words, you received of us, how you ought to walk, the instruction we gave you about your lifestyle. So Paul did teach people how to live. Keep that in mind when you don't like what I say later. (laughs) That as you received of us how you ought to walk and to please God, so you would abound more and more. In other words, you become more proficient in what I told you to, to do as far as your manner of life is concerned. For we know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God. How many of you want to do the will of God? This is the will of God, even your sanctification. That you should abstain from fornication. Here's a problem. If we're already sanctified, how is it that it's the will of God for them to be sanctified and that sanctification come by their lifestyle? Look with me over to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let's start reading in verse 15. Paul's writing to Timothy, and he says some things differently to Timothy as a minister than he says to the church when he writes the letters to the general population. Study to show yourself approved unto God. The word study literally means be diligent to show yourself approved. It doesn't mean study books. 
Now, that would certainly include what we have the opportunity to do today because we've got the Bible in a much greater completed form than Timothy had. Although Timothy did have some of the notes that Paul had, some of the visions and and revelations that Paul had of the Lord, apparently he wrote down because he told Timothy to bring the books, the parchments, bring the books with you when you come see me. So Timothy must have been entrusted with those things, which may be part of the reason why the translators translated this study rather than to be diligent, because literally it just means give your attention to show yourself approved unto God. Studying would be part of it, but that's not all of it. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman which would need us not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. What approves a person before God? Rightly dividing the word of truth. You are approved of God by your understanding, your knowledge, and your lifestyle according to the word of God. Now, that doesn't mean that God's not happy with you until then. He was happy with you when you made Jesus the Lord of your life. But if we're going to walk and live in a pleasing manner, we're going to have to live according to the right dividing of the word of truth, which means you can wrongly divide the word of truth. And folks, a lot of people do. Rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and vain babblings. Another translation says empty and worthless arguments. Now, please notice he's talking doctrine. If he wasn't talking doctrine, he wouldn't have connected it to rightly dividing the word of truth. He's saying the reason people get into empty and worthless arguments, empty and worthless doctrines, they get into goofy things that are unscriptural is because they don't rightly divide the word of truth. Folks, please understand, Paul was about doctrine. I'm not sure... That there's ever a point in time, as a matter of fact, I can't find a point in time in the Bible where Paul ever gave anybody warm, fuzzy feelings. But he always gave them the truth. Always gave them the truth. Why? Because the truth is the thing that Jesus gave him. With the, with the course, with the difficult, with the obstinate personality that history tells us that Paul had, God chose him because he knew he would stick to the truth. Now, some might say that Paul wasn't qualified to be a minister because he didn't walk in love. And that may be true according to their definition of love. But Paul was the man that God chose to stick to what was right, stick to what was true because he knew he was building a foundation that everybody else would be subject to. That's why Paul said... I know that if you follow me, you're in good ground. You're in a good path. I know where you're going to end up. He couldn't say that about everybody. As a matter of fact, if you go back to the Corinthian church, Paul said "There's a, there are divisions among you because some of you are saying Apollos is my guy. Others are saying Peter is my guy. Others are saying, or maybe a few of you are saying Paul's my guy. He says, who are any of us except who God has made us to be? He says the problem is, the answer to the problem of divisions, he said, I would beseech you, brethren, that there be no more divisions among you by doing two things. Number one, speaking the same things and walking in the same judgment. In other words, he's saying, if you all come to rightly divide the word of truth in the same way, there won't be a problem among you. So then what does he tell the Christians? He tells them, this is chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians. He says, I don't care if you judge me. It's a small thing to me for you to judge me. 
I don't care. He said, I don't even judge myself, meaning judging myself against uh, by the flesh. He said, I don't even judge myself. He said, it's the Lord and only the Lord that judges me. In other words, I'm subject to do one and only one thing, and that's to obey God. Don't care if you like it or not. And that's the guy, Paul, that God chose to be one of the, the main establishers, main foundations of the church. Now, what's the answer for these guys that are back and forth? Paul, Peter, Apollos, whoever else comes along. What's the answer? He said, though you have 10,000 instructors, you've got only one father. So follow me as I follow Christ. It's pretty bold. You say something like that nowadays, nowadays, and people will say, what arrogance there is. Are you saying that we should follow you and not follow other people? That's what Paul said. He didn't say you couldn't listen. He didn't say you couldn't be instructed. He said, but if you want to end up in a good place, if you want to end up in a successful and victorious place, follow me. I wonder if God's got people like that nowadays still. Or those all just pass away with Paul. If you're teaching Paul's doctrine, couldn't you be able to say the same thing? Paul is telling Timothy, be the same as me. Rightly divide the word of truth. Avoid this other stuff. Avoid these empty doctrines. Avoid this unscriptural stuff. And folks, please understand, not every supernatural thing that happened in Corinth was of God. Paul is telling the church at Corinth, obviously you can't tell between what's right and what's wrong, so here's the here's the dividing line. Here's the guide so that you know. Here's what the Holy Ghost will do. Here's how he manifests. And this is it. Can I tell you something else the Lord said to me this week after he challenged me on living up to my own preaching? Something else the Lord said to me this week, early on, on Monday morning, first thing, right out of the gate, woke up Monday morning, bang, here it is. The Lord said, how old do you think you have to be before you say things the way they need to be said? Because I got to be honest with you, I don't consider myself to be old. That may come as a shock to some of the young people. My kids think I'm real old. But I don't consider myself to be old. I don't feel any older than I did when I was 30. Now, my body doesn't always agree with that, but you know what I mean. And so there are a lot of things that I say in a, in a smoothed over way. I present it in a, in a real, well, you might want to consider this. Folks, anytime I tell you you might want to consider something, I'm telling you, here's what I know to be true, but I'm trying to let you see it for yourself. Anytime I say I submit to you, I'm saying this is the truth. But I don't want to shove it at you. I don't want to throw it in your face. I want you to have the chance to see it for yourself. But as a result, there are some things that I back up from saying and just kind of get around the edge of. Because I look at myself as being still a young man in ministry. And the Lord asked me, he said, you've been pastoring now for almost 30 years. How old are you going to have to be before you see things and say things the way they need to be said? So I guess he's telling me I'm old. And it's time to say the things that need to be said the way they need to be said. Now, why haven't I? Because I didn't want to be judged. So he took me over to Paul. Small thing to me, Paul said. He said, I don't care if you judge me or not. Well, guess what? I don't care if anybody judges me or not. Paul said the key to success, the key to to, to feeding and overcoming the division that's in the Corinthian church is... Stick with what I'm telling you and follow me. That'll fix your problems. 
Except what I tell you about the Holy Ghost and how he works, no matter what anybody else is saying, no matter what anybody else tells you I said, I'm going to tell you the truth. You can believe me. Follow me. Now, folks, if I may be so bold, I know the path that I'm teaching you. I know where I'm taking you. I know where you end up if you follow me. If you want to end up in victory, if you want to end up in success, if you want to end up where you don't accept flaky doctrine, follow me. That's our tagline, building strong spiritual lives. I hope you're, I hope you're clapping for the doctrine and not me because I got nothing without God. But that's the whole thing that we were sent here to do is build strong spiritual lives. If there's one thing that flaky California needs, it's strong spiritual people. That's what we're sent here to do. Okay, you're still in Second Timothy? Study to show yourself approved. Be diligent to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun vain and profane babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. Please notice that. Wrong doctrines, even if they start off as something simple, lead to more ungodliness. It'll get you off track. The devil doesn't start with some big dumb thing to get you off track. He starts with some little dumb thing to get you into a bigger dumb thing. And their word will lead as doth a canker or a cancer, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus. Now, since Paul is talking to a minister, he mentions some people by name. He didn't normally do that when he was writing to a church. Who, concerning the truth, here's their wrong doctrine, who, concerning the truth, have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already and overthrow the faith of some. Now, notice their wrong teaching is leading some people into shipwreck as far as their Christian life is concerned. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure. No matter what, whether people go with something else that's wrong, whether the majority of people go with something wrong, the foundation, the teaching, the doctrine that the Lord gave me to give you is the foundation of God, and it will never change. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to stay sure. I don't care about being popular. I don't care about being well-known. I don't care about signs and wonders in comparison to being on sure ground. I want signs and wonders, but I want God to confirm his word with signs and wonders. I don't just want flaky stuff going on for people to say, wow, have you heard of the the supernatural things that are happening there? Not everything supernatural is God. Not everything that everybody says is God is God. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure. Having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. Notice he's talking about them that are his as being those own sure foundation of doctrine. And let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. The parting of iniquity that he uses is in context with following wrong doctrine. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and earth, some to honor and some to dishonor. He's talking about in every house, including God's house, there are going to be people that follow wrong things. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that you're safe from wrong doctrine. Safe from swallowing the wrong thing. If a man therefore purge himself from these. What these things is he talking about? If a man therefore purge or purify himself from these things. He's talking about a choice. He's talking about an act of the will. 
He's talking about something that people choose to do on their own. He's talking about lifestyle. Purge themselves from these is the vain babblings, the wrong doctrines and things that he's talked about before. He says, if a man will keep himself from wrong doctrine, if he'll keep himself from flaky things, even if bunches of people, thousands and millions of people are following the suit. If a man will keep himself from wrong doctrine, therefore, here's the result, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified. I thought we were sanctified by the blood of Jesus. We were. But our spirits were sanctified, not our lifestyle. He shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet, appropriate for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. So we see that not only were we sanctified when we were saved, when we made Jesus the Lord of life, he separated our spirits, he made our spirits righteous, he made us new, he made us pure. Now we've got something to do with the rest of us. Look with me over to James chapter 1. James talks about the same thing, he just uses different terminology. James chapter 1, we'll start reading in verse 21, for the sake of time, because we're just trying to introduce something this morning. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. James 1.21. That just simply means you look out of the translations up. It says, separate yourself from all uncleanness. And receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. So please notice that Paul, that James, writing to Christians, says that their souls are not saved. But wait a minute. These people are sanctified. Yeah, their spirits were made new, but their souls haven't been saved. So therefore, what is the sanctification process? It's the process described in Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2, where it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you, sanctified people, present your bodies, because they're not sanctified, a living sacrifice unto God, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual worship. Most translations say spiritual worship. King James says reasonable service. In other words, he's saying you sanctified people need to do something with your bodies. Isn't that what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians? This is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you abstain from fornication. In other words, you're not going to be sanctified if you operate in fornication. You participate in the sin of fornication. Why? Because it's not presenting your body a living sacrifice to God. Romans 12, 2. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's what James is talking about here. Receive with meekness the, the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove, determined by experience, live out in your life, in other words, the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So sanctification was a one-time event when you got saved, and from that point on, it's your responsibility to operate in the process of presenting your body a living sacrifice and renewing your mind to the Word so that your body and your soul will be sanctified. That's why Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 22, abstain from all the appearance of evil. Verse 23, and the God of peace sanctify you wholly. Modern day church knows a little bit about praise and worship. We get in church and we praise and we talk about how great God is and all that kind of stuff. But the real question is, since Jesus said those that worship God must worship him in spirit and truth, since the Bible identifies spiritual worship as presenting your body a living sacrifice, the question for the church is, what have you done with your body? Not how much do you praise God. What have you done with your body? Now, folks, for the next several weeks, I'm going to stir up trouble. 
So some of you may not want to come for the next three or four weeks, which may be your normal attendance schedule. I don't know. But I'm going to jump right in the middle of some of this stuff because it's time. I haven't done what I should have done about this. And I've repented. I ask you to forgive me, but I'm going to make up for lost ground. Now, we've got a few minutes left this morning. Let's start. I've got you now. Might as well really get you. We could do this any number of ways. I could jump right in the middle of the crowd. I could fire a shot right in the middle of the congregation. We could go back to First Corinthians chapter 6 and talk about how the Bible says that Christians shouldn't take other Christians to court. They should be rather willing to take a monetary loss than to go before human courts as spiritual people. Or... We could go to chapter 7. By the way, chapter 6 was the context where Paul said you were unrighteous people, those that participate in adultery, fornication, and so forth, won't inherit the things of God. And you were that way, some of you were that way before, but now you're washed and sanctified. Then he surrounds it with chapter 7, where it says that spouses, husbands, and wives shouldn't defraud one another sexually. The word defraud means to deprive dishonestly. It goes so far as to say the power of the wife's body belongs to the husband and the power of the husband's body belongs to the wife. Sex was not designed to be a reward for good behavior in marriage. Neither was it designed to be a weapon for bad behavior. It was not meant to be a manipulative tool in any manner whatsoever. i got a lot of things I can say about that. But the real question is this, why do Christians do and live and operate contrary to what the Bible says to do? I use those two examples, 1 Corinthians 6, going to court, 1 Corinthians 7, sex within marriage. I use those two examples because as soon as I mentioned either one of them, you could hear people in the congregation say, yeah, but you don't understand. Yeah, but you don't understand. Let me tell you what I do understand. What I do understand is that there are all kinds of reasons why people use to make justifications, to justify themselves for not doing what the Bible says. Now, folks, I'm going to I'm going to skip ahead a little bit and tell you why I'm doing this series. I had a lot more of a conversation with the Lord than just the two things I shared with you. I had a lot more of a conversation with him. And the Lord told me this. He said there are some reasons. I won't give the whole thing, but he said there are some reasons. I'll give you two of them. He said, there are some reasons why I want you to teach this and why I want you to teach it now. One of the reasons he said is he he said, I want to rescue some if they'll hear. The second reason he said, if people will learn to make the adjustments that they need to in their lives, they'll find that their faith starts working because they've been praying. Why isn't my faith working? I don't know if you know this or not, but lifestyle has a lot to do with God answering your prayers. Now, some people will hear that and say, oh, you're preaching law. What about the grace of God? Well, folks, the grace of God gave you the tools so that you could do the right thing so that you could walk in the victory of God. But the grace of God was never meant to be a license to sin or do live any way you want to live. Paul said that. Paul said, even though he wrote this to the Corinthians that when he was talking about uh, the divisions among them, Paul said, I know that it is slanderously reported of me. 
that I preach and that I say, let's just do evil, that the will of the plan and the purpose of God will come into being or come to pass. He said, some even go so far as to be certain that that's what I'm saying. Because he was saying, you don't have to keep the law. Well, Paul wasn't say you, saying you could live any way you wanted to. He was saying you don't have to keep the law of Moses because Jesus has fulfilled that. And since Jesus has fulfilled that, he has a means and a manner and a power to live a lifestyle that is pleasing, appropriate, and holy before God. But so much of the grace teaching here today, and I'm not against it. I'm not against anybody. But so much of what you hear about grace is just God's grace towards you. What about your responsibility? What about since the grace of God is shown towards you? And again, the grace of God, we've defined it a number of ways. The grace of God in its simplest form, in my opinion, just means the finished work of Jesus. Because of the finished work of Jesus, we have the opportunity to live the life that Jesus lived here on the earth. Now, whether you think that's a good thing or not depends on how much you're really trying to get away with sin. I'm not trying to get away with sin. I don't want to sin. I don't like myself when I do sin. The good news is I know it's not me on the inside. It's my flesh that drug me over into it. And I resent it every time it happens. And I'm looking for more and more ability or more and more knowledge so that I can use the ability that I have to live above it. So let's talk, let's take something simple. How many of you know that God wants us all to be honest? Bible says not to steal. Paul wrote to the church, put away lying. Let him that stole steal no more. He wrote to the Romans. He said, provide things honest in the sight of all men. Now, honesty means a lot of different things to different people. To the business owner, honesty means that the employee gives them a full day's work for the time that they're being paid and doesn't steal office supplies. But how many employees do you know, I hope I'm not talking about you, but how many employees do you know that don't think it's a big deal just to take a little bit here and there because we need something at home? Well, is that honest? Where the Bible says not to lie, we understand that that means to tell the truth, but wouldn't that include on our taxes too? Now, folks, let me qualify this by saying nobody hates paying taxes more than I do. Nobody. They're unjust, they're unfair, which puts us exactly in the same position as the Romans where people came to Jesus and said, Jesus, help us get out of these taxes, and Jesus said, pay them. He said, render unto Caesar, meaning the government, what is the government's, and render unto God what's God's. So if you change your attitude and not hate to pay taxes, but instead look to God to help you, he'll multiply it back to you and bless you. But I, when I said I hate to pay them, I don't mean I am from the inside. My flesh hates to pay taxes. And so i got to bring my flesh under every time I do my taxes. Because I'm the half of the crowd that pays them. Instead of the half of the crowd that's getting something. So what does it mean? But again, we're back to the same thing. And that is people make all kinds of excuses for why the Bible doesn't apply to me. Let me read something to you. This is reading from Brother Hagin's little book on redemption. Redeemed from the curse of the law. This is starting on page 9. I want you to hear something about how God operates when it comes to being honest. I preached a meeting several years ago in a small New Jersey town for Pastor A.A. Swift of the Trinity Pentecostal Church. 
At that time, he was 70 years of age. I wasn't preaching along those these lines. These lines means he's uh, he's teaching on um, redeemed from uh, uh, the curse of poverty. And that's what this chapter is about. He said, at that time, I wasn't preaching along those lines. I would preach up to it and around it. I knew it was true, but nobody else was preaching that God had redeemed us from the curse of poverty. So I didn't know whether I should come out on it or not. I get great comfort from that. That helped me justify myself for not saying some of the things I should have said. Knowing Brother Swift was a man of God, an old-timer in Pentecost, considered to be one of the most outstanding full gospel Bible teachers, I talked to him about some of these scriptures. Brother Hagen, here's what Brother Swift said. Brother Hagen, you're absolutely right. You ought to preach that ever that you ought to preach that everywhere you go. God has promised to make every one of us rich. Then he said, "Let me tell you how I found out. I received the Holy Spirit in 1908. That goes back a ways, doesn't it? That's one year after the Azusa Street revival started. And in 1911, my wife and I went as went to missionary went to China as missionaries. That was way back before there was a full gospel organization or a Pentecostal circle. The Assembly of God organization was founded in 1914. I was born, Brother Swift said, and grew up in London, came over to Canada and then to, to the United States. So I had some, con- some connections in England, and a mission there supported us. They gave us $1,236 a year. That's $103 a month support. 1911, that's pretty good. And we spent the year, 1911, or most of it, as, in China as missionaries. But every time I would go to pray, I had a place where I went for my secret prayers. The Spirit of God would deal with my heart And tell me, now, please understand, this is Brother Swift saying, here's what God said when I prayed. He'd tell me, send in your resignation. If these people knew you believed in speaking in tongues, they wouldn't support you because they don't believe with speaking with tongues is the evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You have stayed quiet, which is almost the same as receiving the money under false pretenses. You can't preach what the Bible teaches. On the slide, you may get it over to a few people, but if you come right out and preach it, that will be the end. I want you to preach the full truth. Brother Swift asked, Lord, what am I... <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Brother Swift asked, Lord, what am I to do? If I do that, my wife and I and our children will be cut off without any support here in China. I, it would be rough enough to be in America without support in 1912, much less in China. What am I to do? God answered him, I want you to turn this mission station back to them. It wouldn't be right for you to steal it from them. And it wouldn't. You go over to another place and start a new work. Lord, start a new work in China in 1912 with no one to support it. That's what I want you to do, the Lord said. Lord, we'll never make it. And then the Lord said, didn't you know that I promised to make you rich? And he talked about how the Lord taught him and told him about the blessing of prosperity. Now, folks, I want you to understand how honest God is. God is so honest that he would not have someone preach a message that is against what the organization supports when the organization is supporting them financially. Let me tell you a story. Heard from a lady just a couple of weeks ago um, that told us, and, and this is not a criticism of, of anybody involved. I'm just relating the, the, the story that came. So please don't let anybody get your feelings hurt about this. It's not meant that way. But I, there was a lady that was uh, at her newcomer's thing recently. And uh, we got to talking to her, met her, and got to talking to her. And she said, well, I've been coming for a little while. She said, but I've been watching you on TV for about 10 months, I think she said. And I said, oh, well, thanks for watching. I appreciate that. How did you find out about us? And she said, well, I go to a Bible study that's close to her home, some distance away. Uh, 
that's sponsored by a church, another church, local church in the area. And she said the person that was teaching the Bible study started using your materials on the authority of the believer. And so I found out about you and started looking at your stuff online and started watching the TV program from there. Well, I know for a fact that the church that supports the Bible study would not in any way support somebody using our materials to teach. They don't believe in what we teach. They don't believe in what we preach. There's no way they'd go for that. So let me ask you a question. Knowing what Brother Swift said about how the Lord directed him not to try to teach the baptism of the Holy Ghost to the people, even though it's true, but to give them the organization back their mission station and him go start another work. I have no doubt whatsoever that the intent of the individual doing the Bible study that we were talking about have no, in, no, uh, no question whatsoever that they were trying to do the right thing. I have no doubt that they meant well. But folks, as far as God's concerned, that's dishonest. I don't think they were wrong in their heart, but they were wrong in their actions. Now, I've got to hold, I've got to hold the same truth to bear as far as the word's concerned, even when we benefit. And we benefited from that. We benefited from somebody doing what the Bible tells us in the way God operates. Because now we've got somebody in our church. But it's still true. The truth is still true. Now, let me tell you the flip side of this. There's a guy that came to our church. And again, this is I'm not trying to don't want to call any names, don't want to uh, embarrass anybody or draw attention to, to the individuals at all. But there's somebody that came to our church, started coming in a couple of years ago, maybe something like that. And they were going through a, a real bad divorce. I don't know what a good divorce is, but nevertheless, you know what I mean? Real tough situation, child involved and, and so forth. Emotionally distraught came to the church and, and started asking us a bunch of questions. What about this? What about that? What about the other? We gave him some scriptures. And this fellow took a hold of him. He grabbed hold of the word, started putting it into practice, started confessing the word. And you could see him week after week after week. He'd come on Wednesday nights, week after week after week, still going to the other church that he came from. Same church that was supporting the Bible study that we talked about in the other story. Still going to the same church. But would come here on Wednesday nights, come up after the service, ask me another question. I'd give him a scripture for it. You could see him. He'd just start getting stronger and stronger. Every week he'd come stronger than he was last week. Well, he came and told somebody the story. He didn't tell me. But he came uh, some, uh, to, to uh, tell somebody the story here at the church that um, uh, he was involved in a divorce recovery or support group. I don't know what they called it over at the other group, other church. And that he had still been going there still involved and still there, but people could start to see that he was stronger. And every now and then something would be said in the in the, the support group. I don't know if it's a Bible study. I don't know what they did. But anyway, something would be said, and he would say, he would quote one of these scriptures. He'd say, well, you know, the Bible says blah, blah, blah. And and people were just coming to him after the after the thing was over and say, where'd you find that out? How do you know that? And he, he just said, well, I'm finding that out at the other church I go to. But he didn't say anything openly, openly, openly in the group. He didn't try to give it anybody to come. Hey, come to my church, the church that I found, because here's what I'm finding out. Even though that might have been good for them, it might have been healthy for them to find out what the word said. But he didn't try to pull people away. Folks, the Bible says that God hates people that sow discord among the brethren. It doesn't say he didn't like it. It says he hates it. That means God hates sheep thieves. But that's not what this guy did. This guy instead just shared a little bit on the side. When people asked him, he wasn't trying to push anything. He was getting stronger and they saw it. And so he would answer their questions when they came. He was able to help them some. He did it the right way. 
He shared what he had found for the purpose of helping and being a blessing to them. But he wasn't trying to steal anybody's group. He wasn't trying to steal anybody away. He wasn't trying to change anything else. It's so amazing to me how many people come to our church with some doctrine on their agenda that they want to change our church to become. It's always amazed me. It's different now than it used to be 20 years ago. 20 years ago, people would come and say, well, Pastor Mike, the church that I just came to did this. And I'd say, then why'd you leave? Well, I just thought you'd want to know. I don't. Yeah, but they're a real successful church. Then why did you leave? Well, I just thought it was a good thing. Maybe you'd want to do it here. I said, if the Lord tells me to do it, I'll be glad to. Thank you very much. But people, 20 years ago, people came with an agenda where a program was concerned. Now it's doctrine. Now people come in and they've heard some special teacher, some famous preacher, some somebody that's either on radio, TV, something well-known, and they want to bring the doctrine in with them. Folks, let me tell you something. God doesn't send any person, man or woman, to this church or any other church to change the church. And that includes me. God doesn't send me here to change the church because it's not my church. Jesus is the head of the church. He's the one that planted it. He's the one that's seen us through. He's the one that's got us this far. He's the one that we're supposed to follow as we go forward. I'm not even supposed to change the church. So anybody that's got the idea that they're supposed to change the church or teach me or help me or whatever else, that's not how God works. If that's what God wants you to do, then he wants you to start your own church. Good luck. One of the, um, one of the downsides to humility is that you've got to act like people that don't have anything have something. It's amazing to me how many people have all the answers who have never done anything in their lives. Now, folks, it all comes down to this. It all comes down to spiritual pride. People refuse to act on the word where lawsuits are concerned because of spiritual pride. People defraud one another, husbands and wives defraud one another in sex because of spiritual pride. People try to change things and make excuses for not putting the word to work in their lives because of one and only one thing, and that's spiritual pride. And if the devil can get you started in spiritual pride in a little way, he can keep you going in spiritual pride in a big way. Now, let me give you another example. You hear me talk a lot about Brother Hagin, right? I use Brother Hagin's stories. I'd rather use his story than my own story. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes that's not. Sometimes the Lord deals with me about, no, you tell your own story. But I do it because I'm really not trying to draw attention to myself. And because I know that Brother Hagin is a safe guide, the life and the proof of his ministry, the proof of his life and his ministry is well seen. So he's a safe guide. I know that some people would rather believe and and accept somebody and follow somebody that's already finished their course than somebody that's operating now, even though I'm teaching the same truth. And that's okay with me. I don't care. Because I'm interested in where you end up, not what you think of me. But here's something. If I use Brother Hagin frequently in my messages, then if there's something that I teach that doesn't agree with what Brother Hagin taught, wouldn't it be the honest thing for me to tell you where we disagree? Let me give you an example. John Lake, you've heard me talk about him some. John Lake had an experience that he called his sanctification experience. He said that there was a time of prayer where he was praying and all of a sudden the fire of God fell on him. 
This was after he was already in ministry. He was saved, filled with the Holy Ghost, already in ministry. He said, but the fire of God fell on him. And he said, it burned away from me every desire, ungodly desire that I had. He said, from that point forward, I was separated and sanctified unto God. And so he taught that sanctification was an experience that happened after salvation. Not a process, not a process of renewing the mind and presenting your body, but a one-time experience. Now, the problem with that, I disagree. We've got scriptural evidence to disagree with that. I'm not going to discount his experience, but here's the tendency that we all have. We all have the tendency to take our own experience and how God dealt with us and say, this is how God wants to deal with everybody. Well, nobody can do that for you or me or anybody else. I know how God dealt with me for the plan of of his plan for my life, but I can't tell you that's how he's going to deal with you. Lake, therefore, defines sanctification as possessing the mind of God and all the mind of God. Now, I'm not going to discount his experience. I'm not going to say that what he says happened didn't happen. But what I am going to say is I can't build a doctrine on his experience. I'm stuck with the word instead and happy to be stuck with it. So what I've just done, I can tell you everything about John Lake that he's done, every great thing that he's done. I can magnify the work that he's done. But if on a point that I disagree with him, I need to be honest enough to say that I disagree with him so you don't think (coughs) that everything that Lake preached is what we agree with or what we are doing And it's not credibility for our ministry. (coughs) There's a lot of people out there that are using Brother Hagin as a platform for their credibility. But they don't tell you where they depart from Brother Hagin's doctrine. Is that honest? I'm not judging somebody's heart. But the Bible talks about judging things from a spiritual standpoint, comparing spiritual things with spiritual things. If I use Brother Hagin as credibility and then go preach some off-the-wall thing like the church at Corinth was doing and say this is okay, then I've left you with the impression that Brother Hagin would support anything and everything I'm teaching. And that's dishonest. And there's a lot of people doing it out there. So what excuses are you making? What justifications are you making for yourself and in your life and in your situation that keeps you from acting on what the Bible says to do? You're forfeiting blessings of God if you do it. And so often, if, if the surveys are be, to be believed, if the surveys about the, the, the uh, percentage of Christians that lie and percentage of Christians that cheat, even on tests in school and stuff like that, if the percentage of those uh, Christians operating in these things that we know and they know are wrong are accurate, Why would that be? Why would that be? They've got to be justifying it to themselves some way. Folks, when the Bible says provide things honest in the sight of all men, that means to live an open life, not some kind of secret life, not some kind of secret life where pornography is concerned or or some other thing that you're trying to keep hidden from everybody. It means to provide an open, honest, and clear life. I met a guy um, when I was a young minister. Just, well, I was still in Bible school, as a matter of fact. I met a guy that I looked in his face, and you could just see there was a light of God in his face. His eyes were the clearest of anybody I've ever seen. And I just said to the Lord when I first met him, I said, Wow, Lord, I would love to have that kind of countenance. The Bible talks about the countenance of David in the Old Testament. It talks about the countenance of others. It talks about people being able to see the glory of God in Moses' face. 
I saw it in this guy's face. And I said to myself and said to the Lord, wow, that'd be great to do that. He said, the Lord answered me back immediately. He said, you'd have to live the clean life that he does if you're going to have that. Well, that ended my discussion because there were things I didn't want to give up at that point in time. Folks, I'm telling you this. Well, let me close with this. Turn back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. First Corinthians chapter four is the things that I referred to earlier in the service. Verse three. He said, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged of you or man's judgment. Yea, I judge mine own self, judge not mine own self. For I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified. But he that judges me is the Lord. He goes down in verse seven. He says, for who maketh thee to differ from another? He says, in other words, who's Paul and who's of Apollos? The whole reason he said he used himself and Apollos as an example or an illustration, he says, because I want you to see that neither one of us are anything without God. For who makes one to differ from another? All we have is what God's given us. That's his whole point. Skip down to verse. uh, Skip down to verse 14. He said, I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved son's. I warn you. That's why I'm teaching this, folks. I'm teaching this as a warning. Because the things of the world are not going to get better. There's not going to be a solution for the economy. There's not going to be a solution for health care. There's not going to be a solution for government takeover of more and more of the of society and, and the things that are going on around us. There's not going to be a solution for that. Now, if I'm wrong, you can say, well, Pastor Mike was wrong about that. Okay. Well, either way, I'm prepared. If it gets better, I'm prepared. If it gets worse, I'm prepared. But there's not going to be a change in the in the operation of the earth. The Bible says men are going to get worse and worse. It's hard to imagine how they're going to get worse than what we see now. But they will. So you're going to have to be prepared. And if things that you're holding on to, and remember Paul wrote to the to the Hebrews and he said in chapter 12, he said, wherefore, because of the great crowd of witnesses, those that have gone before us in faith, he said, wherefore, let us lay aside the sins and the weights which do so easily beset us and run with patience the race that's set before us. He said not everything is a sin, but there are weights here on the earth that can hold you back. If you don't shed both the sins and the weights, you're not going to be able to run your race effectively, which means you're not going to reach the place that God wants you to reach, which means you're not going to walk into victory that is available to you in the, uh, as, by the sacrifice of Jesus. That's the warning. I don't write these things to shame you, he said. I don't write these things to call attention to sin. I write these things or or speak these things to warn you. Then he says in verse 15, for though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have you not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus have I begotten you through the gospel. Now, he started the church so he could say that. Well, guess what? We started this one. We weren't the first church in town like he was. But we started this one just as much as he started the one in Corinth. Wherefore, I beseech you, be ye followers of me.
If you want to walk in victory in your life, you're going to have to shed those things that you have knowledge of. You're going to have to let go of the things that you're making excuses for. You're going to have to turn loose of the things that you're using as justification for not acting on the word. Because there's nothing that God wants more for you than to live in victory. He wants there to be such a clear distinction between his people and the world, especially in the last days. The shorter the time becomes, the more God wants it to be seen. And there's never been a time in the history of mankind that it's been more important for us to live not only with the power of God in our lives, but with the character of Jesus in demonstration. God wants that for you. He wants that for me. He wants that for all of his children. But it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you the pleasure of sin for a season. For the greater right, the greater riches of the glory of the inheritance that we have in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the privilege that we have to walk according to the example of Jesus. We thank you, Father, for the word of God that's made so clear and so plain unto us to show us the manner in which we should walk approved of God and pleasing unto him. Lord, I ask by the Holy Ghost that you would open our eyes to those things that we're making excuses for in life. Those things that we make excuses to not live the word of God. Those things that we're holding on to that are contrary to the word that hinder us from running our race and receiving the fullness of the blessing of God in our lives. We thank you, Father, that as we turn those things loose and choose to live a clear, clean, and honest life before man and before you, that the fullness of the victory of Jesus Christ is manifest in our lives. In healing, in righteousness, in prosperity, in peace, in every area. We thank you, Lord, for making it so. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Come ahead, gentlemen. You know, I didn't know that this was Communion Sunday until I, I, I just slipped my mind. It was on the calendar, but I wasn't, didn't make a note of it until I got here this morning. And knowing which way the Holy Ghost was taking us, it's so appropriate that we do take communion together as we begin this. Because this communion, these elements that represent the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, represent the total sacrifice that he made. <clears throat> Jesus didn't give us a half effort. He gave us everything that he had. It cost him everything to walk according to the plan and the purpose of God for his life. Getting saved is the easiest thing there is to do because all you have to do is accept the sacrifice that Jesus made. But that's where the hard part starts because the Bible requires of us that we walk worthy of his life, worthy of the life that he lived as an example, worthy of the, the, the righteous and holy blood that he shed. I think it's good for us to ask ourselves the question, <clears throat> not because we're seeking to bring condemnation in on, on anybody, <clears throat> but to make the adjustments that need to be made. Are we living a life that's worthy of the righteous Son of God? 
That's what the Bible means when it says to judge yourself. Are we living worthy of the Lord? I don't know your sins. Don't want to know. And nobody else does either. But Jesus does. And are the things that we're holding on to worth forfeiting the part of salvation that belongs to us and the victory that could be ours if we just let ourselves go and commit ourselves completely to the Lord? These are things to consider. These are things that only we can make the decision on in our own lives. But the things that Jesus desires for us, there are things that are necessary. Now, don't get me wrong. God in his mercy overcomes a lot of people's wrongdoing. But he expects us to grow out of it. He expects us to come to the point where Jesus is the most important thing in our lives and living pleasing to God more than pleasing ourselves with our own lifestyle should be paramount. Amen.